Good morning. We now join a live Bible worship from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome you to our Sunday morning Bible class here. First of all, we welcome the people who are here in our gymnasium. And if you're here in the gymnasium, we do have sheets over on the side that have the lessons printed out that we're going to be looking at. We welcome also our audience on KFUO 8.50 a.m. here in the St. Louis area and worldwide at KFUO.org. As is our usual practice, we'll be taking a look at the lessons that are assigned for next Sunday, which happens to be the Transfiguration of our Lord. And on that day, we will say goodbye to Epiphany and see Lent uh, coming down the tracks at us. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let's begin, though, first of all, with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that your Son has come, that we might have life, and have abundant life and eternal life through him. We thank you that as we are gathered here, we know that our sins are forgiven, and we have his victory over sin, death, and the grave. We pray your Holy Spirit's blessing upon us here, as we continue in the study of your word. May he bless us so that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word and also of your will for us as your children here. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I mentioned, uh, next Sunday is going to be the transfiguration of our Lord, and that is the culmination of the Epiphany season. This is a very long Epiphany season this year, and that's because Easter is April 21, which is about five days, as I understand it, five days away from as late as it can be. And so many times, we do not even get to the readings that we had uh, this morning, for example, seventh Sunday uh, after the Epiphany, because we're already either at Transfiguration or in some years already into Lent. And so it's kind of an unusual year here this year in that Easter is coming so very late this year. Just to kind of uh, back up for a minute and see the bigger picture, remember that Epiphany begins January 6 every year. That is a fixed date. And the word Epiphany means to make something known, to reveal something or make it known. And of course, on January 6 on Epiphany, we recall the coming of the Magi to worship the newborn king, and in that, God is making Christ known, not only to those Magi who, remember, are Gentiles, but then, of course, the assumption is they're going to go back and make him known even further back in the east where they came from. So there's the initial making of Christ known. He's been born, now he's being made known as the Savior. Then right the next Sunday after Epiphany, we've got the baptism of our Lord. And remember how the voice of the Father says, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The uh, Holy Spirit comes down in the form of the dove upon Christ. So again, we're seeing Christ being made known as the Savior. Not, that he, not just that he's been born now, but who he is as the Savior. Uh, we're going to hear an echo of that same uh, father's uh, identification, I guess you would say, of the son today in the gospel lesson, the transfiguration account, where the, savior, uh, where the father again says, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's a difference here. At his baptism, he says to the son, you are my son. Today in the transfiguration account, he says to Peter, James, and John, and really all of us, this is my beloved son. So he's speaking not to his son, but to all of us ultimately, and Peter, James, and John. So you get the, the voice of the father is sort of bookends in the season of Epiphany. And again, the idea is that we are making known who the Christ is here as the Savior, the Anointed One, the Messiah, who is sent from God. And so um, just kind of keep that in mind as we go through this. And of course, next Sunday, the Transfiguration is a festival Sunday so that all three of the readings, will be tied together thematically. Remember, on, on every other Sunday that's a non-festival Sunday, it's usually the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson that are tied together thematically. Well, because this is a festival Sunday, also the Epistle lesson now, all three lessons tie together, talking about Christ and uh, who He is, and, and ultimately now uh, we'll see tied together with Moses and Elijah as well, okay? So that's kind of a, a look at what uh, where we're headed. Now, I've, I've got the collect of the day there for you at the top, and remember that collect is that short prayer that we have usually right before we read the scripture lessons. We've had the confession and absolution, and we have this collect. And so you see there on the top of your sheet, uh, it says, O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, so we, right away we know we're at transfiguration here, you confirmed the mysteries of the faith. Now, the mysteries of the faith is not some mysterious thing. It's simply a mystery because we don't know it by nature. It has to be revealed to us, okay? So we don't know by nature that Christ is in fact the chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior to come. And, and we're saying here, by your transfiguration of him, you confirmed or you made known and made sure to us the mysteries of the faith, namely, again, salvation through him, by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In Luke's account, which we have here, we're going to see Luke's the one who tells us what they were talking about up there on that mountain when he appears. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, that would be the Father's voice, you wonderfully foreshadowed our adoption by grace. Foreshadowed our adoption in and through Christ. Okay, by that voice identifying him as the beloved Son. Mercifully, now mercifully make us co-heirs with the King, of course that would be Christ, in his glory, and bring us the fullness of our inheritance in heaven or you might say the culmination of our inheritance in heaven okay and then the, the ending the usual ending there through the same jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns with you in the holy spirit one god now and forever amen now the old testament lesson for the transfiguration of our lord is one of the great dramatic scenes in all of scripture you can just see this on a big movie screen God takes Moses to the top of Mount Nebo and shows him the grand panorama of the promised land. And yet, Moses is not going to be able to set foot in that promised land. Okay? 
So it's one of the great dramatic scenes in all of scripture and would make a great uh, movie scene. Uh, you can just see Hollywood uh, doing this, right? Now, why was Moses not allowed uh, to go into the promised land? We'll talk about that. But first of all, for those of you that have a Bible, let's set this up and go back two chapters earlier in Deuteronomy 32. And we'll start at verse 48. Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 48. And God actually tells Moses to go up on that mountain where you're going to die. Actually tells him that. Predicts it. Okay? So start, uh, I'm going to read it along. Follow along if you have a uh, Bible with you. Starting at verse 48 of, of Deuteronomy 32. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Avarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. I don't know what your reaction is. I, I always feel a little tinge of sadness for Moses, you know? Uh, he's, he's the guy that, you remember God speaks to him out of the burning bush way back in Exodus 3. And uh, Moses has all kinds of excuses as to why he shouldn't be God's person to lead this nation. He's slow of speech, and we think he may have, may have had a stuttering problem or issue, some, some speech impediment anyway. And then he tries to get out of it when God says, go to your people. And he says, when I go to them and they say, who sent me? Who shall I say sent me? And, you know, he's just trying to backpedal all the way. But finally he goes and does what God has asked him to do. And then struggles. Uh, you know, God does one of the greatest salvific acts, in, in certainly in the Old Testament, uh, through Moses in parting the Red Sea and freeing his people from their slavery in Egypt. And then Moses has to wander around with this, with this nation of people for 40 years in the wilderness uh, due to their own lack of faith. Remember, they get to the edge of the promised land and they send the spies in and they come back and report that the people, except for, except for Joshua and Caleb, everybody else comes back, the spies come back and say that all oh, these people are too big and too formidable. We, we can't go in and do that. So Moses has to lead this people, first of all, and they're complaining about no water. God gives them water, no food. God gives them manna, no meat. God gives them quail. And, you know, he, so he suffers through with these people. And now he goes up to the top of the mountain, right? Looks out over this whole land. The good news is they're going in. The bad news is you're not, right? Now, God gives a reason for this, okay? And some of you may know the story. And to see, God says, you were unfaithful to me and did not, in a sense, did not glorify me or give credit to me. And we've got that account. He talks about the waters at Meribah Kadesh. And if you, again, if you have a Bible, this is in Numbers 20. Numbers 20. 
starting with, we'll start with verse 10. It's just verses 10 through 13. And this is that incident that occurred that is, again, the reason that Moses is not going to set foot in the land. So starting at verse 10 of Numbers 20, again, the people are complaining about no water here. This is kind of the backdrop here. And God instructs Moses, you know, strike the rock. Uh, and, and they were, they were uh, also not only complaining about no water, but they're actually starting to revolt against Moses and Aaron. And, of course, this was nothing new. They did this repeatedly. You brought us out here to kill us and you know, all kinds of insinuations. But starting at verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, for the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, what, what was wrong, maybe, about the question he asked there? Shall we bring it? And, and notice he, who he's not acknowledging there. Not acknowledging God as the source of that water that's going to come out. Okay? And then, uh, uh, so then going on, uh, and Mo, verse 11, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them, he showed himself holy. Notice that, uh, and again, uh, who's writing, who's the author of, uh, of this book? Moses. And this is one of the, uh, of course, the, one of the five of the Pentateuch. And notice how Moses there is concluding that, therefore, God here showed himself holy. So that's the incident. And um, that's, that's what happened. They, uh, he strikes the rock fails to acknowledge God as the source of that water and of that blessing. And God lets them know right then and there, right after it, that he's not going to enter the promised land, and, and Aaron as well. And now, in back to Deuteronomy 32, now comes when this is going to happen. God says, go up to that mountain, and you will die there. You'll be gathered to your fathers, just as Aaron was got, gathered to his fathers at Mount Hor. There's all the land, and you're not going to set foot in it. Okay? So that's the end of chapter 32. Chapter 33 is God, or is rather Moses blessing the, the, the people of God, the, the tribes. And, you know, you think about that. That's like his farewell, not like a farewell sermon, I guess, but sort of. It's the last time after all this that he's going to address this entire group of people, this entire nation of people. And... He goes blessing after blessing down through each of the tribes. And now finally, we get to the point here uh, of our Old Testament lesson for next Sunday. So let's read this through. Uh, starting, we're at Deuteronomy 34, starting at verse 1. Again, this is the Old Testament lesson next Sunday. With This is backdrop. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. Uh, for those of you that are a little familiar, or maybe if you have a Bible that has a map in it, uh, you can look at, this is east of the Jordan River. It is uh, about directly across from maybe a little bit north of the Dead Sea. So it's down to the south. 
and uh, this is a, a, a wilderness area. And Mount Nebo, you can go there today. It's about uh, 2,600 feet. So this is not a huge mountain as, as we would consider mountains of the world. But nonetheless, from there, like other spots in the Holy Land, you can look out and see for a long way. And because everything else is so flat. And actually, the Dead Sea is the lowest, lowest spot on the earth uh, in terms of below sea level. So Moses is up there. And God is going to, he's, he, we know from where God shows him that he's facing north. And God is going to do a panorama around counterclockwise to right in front of him. So God's going to start up to the north. So starting at the next verse, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. So we're up north now and we're, we're going to go uh, west across as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. So now we're starting to come down, the, the, like by the seacoast, coming down south. Uh, and the land of Judah, well, we know where that is, right? That's where Jerusalem is and so on. So we're coming, now we're coming across from the sea toward where he's at over here, near Jericho. As far as the Western Sea, well, that would be the Mediterranean Sea. The Negev, which is a sort of a, a again, a desert, desert or wilderness type area. The plain, that would be the plain of Sharon, down the center, very fertile uh, land. And the valley of Jericho and the city of Palms. You go to Jericho today, that is its nickname, the city of Palms. It's like an oasis out there and uh, is, is quite a, quite a city. Uh, as far as Zoar, so that, and that's, that's even going to be a little bit south and west of there. So, you know, again, he shows, he takes them up there and he shows them and he's, he's, he's naming them off as they come around, you know, and there he is. I guess on the one hand, you could say Moses dies knowing that his people are going to go into that land, right? But there's another sense. When does Moses actually get to set foot in the promised land? In the gospel lesson, transfiguration of our Lord. There he is on top of the mountain, okay? So don't feel too sorry for him. He actually gets to, to be there with Elijah and actually set foot in there, okay? So, uh, back to the lesson, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, said to Moses, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Uh, you know, he kind of... Isn't it nice that uh, we see here the faithfulness of God? God reminds Moses, I promise this to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I mean, this God is going all the way back to Genesis 12 when he makes the initial covenant with Abraham. And, so, and then Genesis 17 and so on, where God says, remember... I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the, the grains of sand on the seashore. I will give you a land, and again, through your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And that is the faithful God, who in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, is faithful. And he's just demonstrating, I'm coming through. This is what I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be there. And it's going to be for your offspring as well. So he would die certainly knowing that. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there 
in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, you know, just like God said. Now, here's an interesting little uh, juncture here. Verse 6. And he buried him in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. All right, we've got to talk about this for a second. Uh, he buried him. So who buried Moses? Yeah, we think the he there, at least in the Hebrew. Now, there's two versions of this. Let me, first of all, talk about the Hebrew text. Uh, is uh, he buried him, and that usually we understand to be God. And why do you think that God did not set up a big monument for Moses? I mean, this guy is the giant in the Old Testament. Why, why would the people not even know... Why would God not want the people even to know where Moses was buried? I mean, wouldn't God make a big monument and say, this is, this is Moses, who I used to bring you out of, you know. Why do you think God would, in effect, keep it a secret? Yeah. One reason uh, that we, again, we're, we're conjecturing here, God doesn't say, but think about what would happen if the people knew where Moses was buried. Oh. It would be a place of worship, you know. It would be a shrine that maybe they start worshiping Moses instead of the God of Moses, right? And so that's usually the reason given. Another reason given is that if enemies of the Lord ever got control of that land, that they would not dig up the remains of Moses and desecrate the remains of Moses. So there really are two possible reasons there. That first one, though, is the one that we normally think of first that, just think of that, boy, if they knew where Moses was buried, it, it would become a, almost a place of occultic worship, or it would have the danger of doing that, let's put it that way, that people would turn it into some kind of a Moses cultic worship or something, and that's the last thing uh, Moses would want or God would want, right? Uh, now, the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, <clears throat> we won't look at it here as um, uh, time-wise, but in Jude verse 9, okay, it talks about Michael, the archangel, contending for the body of Moses. And it just blips out there uh, all of a sudden, and we think, whoa, what is that? Where did that come from? Jude verse 9. And so we think that Jude, that although God buried Moses, that Michael, the archangel, was the instrument or the means that God used to actually bury Moses, wherever he was buried. We don't know, okay? But I just want to comment on that because uh, we don't, obviously, we don't study the book of Jude too often, but there is that verse in there. And it, when you first read it, it kind of makes you stand up and take notice. What are we talking about here? Uh, so that's, but that is in, <clears throat> in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Instead of he buried him, it says they buried him. And so the plural there, we think, is God and Michael, the archangel. Okay? That's maybe more than you wanted to know about, about uh, the burial of Moses. But it is out there. And if you ever read Jude 9, that's kind of what we're talking about there. So again, God buried him and probably used Michael, the archangel, as the agent or the, uh, the means through which... He buried Moses, okay? Uh, next one, a little, uh, little uh, commentary on Moses' uh, physical condition here. Moses was 120 years old when he died, 
his eye was undimmed. So in other words, he had good eyesight and uh, his vigor unabated. Okay, at 120. Uh, and, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Okay, so this is it now for Moses. Now we continue. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Remember, Joshua was one of the two spies who came back, Caleb is the other, and had a positive, you know, the, uh, after they went in to spy out the land, had a positive recommendation. The Lord has, given, has said to, promised to give us this land. And, and he did not want to turn back in fear. And as a result of his faithfulness, God is choosing him now to lead the people into that promised land. So Joshua the son of Noah was full of spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And so Moses had publicly, uh, you might say, um, commissioned, uh, could say ordained, I guess, uh, Joshua to be his successor. And this was done publicly through the laying on of hands. Uh, in some ways, similar to the way we have an ordination and an installation today. It's a public uh, uh, act that, again, signals to all what is happening here. And this would allow, uh, you know, the, the goodwill everybody had toward Moses to be passed on to Joshua now. In other words, he's the new guy. And so uh, then verse 9, uh, and jo um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him were all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that's kind of a bad, it's more uh, awe, you know, it's probably a better translation. All the deeds of awe that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And there the curtain comes down. On Moses, the curtain comes down on the Pentateuch. This is the last book of Moses uh, in the Old Testament. And there's now there's a transition taking place. And so we're going to see Joshua now lead the people into that promised land and take, take possession of that land. Uh, they're going to cross over the Jordan River on dry ground, just like, the, the, just like when Moses parted the Red Sea and God's people went across on dry ground. Joshua is going to lead the people to do this now, and we'll be picking up the story after that. Okay? All right. Let me stop here and ask, are there any questions or comments? This is, again, this is great drama. Uh, in this lesson. Yeah? Okay, yes, the question was, is there any estimate as to how large this group of people was? Um, it's in, I think it's in the book of Numbers that we have 600 and some odd thousand men. And that's not including women and children. So I've often estimated, you know, if you just add one child and, uh, on average, one child and one uh, uh, woman per man, well, you're at 1.8 million, so around 2 million people. So this is not just a little band of people that are, that are going through. And when you stop and think about that, it's, it's literally a nation out there in the wilderness of Moab 
and a nation of people going across the Jordan River now to take possession of this land. So this was no small, this is no small group to lead. And remember, they were very efficiently organized through the heads of the families or the tribes, and they all camped within their tribal groups, and uh, they were very, very well organized. But it's a big group, not a small one. Remember, uh, when they were still in Egypt, uh, that was one of the things. They were multiplying so quickly that uh, the Egyptians were not happy with that and uh, saw it as a problem, actually, for them. Okay, good question. Any others? All right, let's move on. I want to jump to the gospel lesson. I, I, we could do the epistle now, but let's go to the gospel lesson since it is, again, the transfiguration. And uh, we want to see Moses uh, actually get into the promised land this time. All right, so let's go about, uh, we're, uh, for those at home, we are in Luke 9, and we start at verse 28 of Luke 9. This is the year of Luke, so we get Luke's account of the transfiguration here this year. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. All right, why don't we stop there for just a moment. About eight days after these sayings, well, what are these sayings that preceded this uh, transfiguration? Uh, two things. First of all, remember, uh, and you can look in Luke, it's right before this, in Luke chapter 9. Jesus asked the disciples, who do men, who do people say that I am? And uh, the answer comes back, uh, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? Peter, again, makes the good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so that's one of the sayings, but then comes another one. Jesus says, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and be killed, and rise again on the third day. Then Jesus says right after that, whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. And so those are things the disciples really didn't want to hear, right? They're all happy hearing, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, that's, that's good. But then Jesus comes back and gives them a sobering, a uh, couple bits of information about what's going to happen in the future and what their role is going to be in the future. Take up your cross and follow me. So it's about eight days after these sayings now, so a little bit more than a week, a week and a day after this happened, that Jesus takes them up on the mountain. Okay. Now i got to say, uh, obviously the logical question is, well, what mountain is it? We don't know. We don't know for sure. The traditional... Um, assume the mountain is Mount Tabor. Uh, in fact, there's even a church on top of Mount Tabor called the Church of the uh, Transfiguration. Again, just because there's a church there doesn't mean it's necessarily the right one, but the early church fathers, the tradition was that it was this mountain. Mount Tabor is uh, south and uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of hard to, it's kind of out in the middle of the an area there, north north of Jerusalem, and so on. The other one that is uh, sometimes said to be the place is Mount Hermon, which is up north and is a huge mountain, uh, 9,200 feet up. And that's actually when the it actually snows up. You, you'll see snow on that mountain, and it actually forms the headwaters for the Jordan River. 
And the reason that that one is sometimes spoken of is where Jesus was right before this. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am, he was in Caesarea Philippi, which is right near Mount Hermon. It's not very far away at all. So which mountain it was, we, in the end, we have to say we don't know. It's not spelled out in Scripture. But those are the two leading contenders, I guess you'd say. Mount Tabor, just due to the early church fathers saying the tradition was, and the other one, Mount Hermon, because of, in Matthew 17, it says they went up to a high mountain. Okay? And Mount Hermon is a high mountain. And again, they were in that area. So that's, that's been the speculation. Again, not, not necessarily important, but uh, we just don't know. All right, verse 29. And as he was praying, well, you wonder what was he praying about at this point? No? We'd love to know. We, several times we get this, and we would love to know what he was praying about. The appearance of his face was altered or was changed. And his clothing became dazzling white. It's almost like lightning in the, in the Greek. It's like lightning, okay? Uh, so dazzling white. And behold, whenever you see behold, that means take notice. Take notice. Something big's coming here. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses, we talked quite a bit about with the Old Testament lesson. A uh, great uh, prophet and intercessor for God's people and the old leader of God's people in the Old Testament. Elijah, of course, is uh, the great uh, prophet known uh, for his defeat of the prophets of Baal, right, at Mount Carmel. And, um, you know, just known as a great prophet, it was predicted Elijah would return before Christ would come. Jesus tells his disciples, Elijah has come, John the Baptist. But anyway, Elijah and Moses are up there talking with Christ. Can you imagine that? Uh, you've got the law and prophets represented there by Moses and Elijah up on Mount, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, whichever mountain it is. And then the big thing is, what were they talking about? Luke's the one who tells us. And he says, they spoke of his departure, of Christ's departure. And in the original language, guess what word that departure is? Exodus. They spoke of his exodus. Moses is up there speaking about Christ's exodus. And that exodus would include his suffering and death on the cross, his resurrection again from the dead, and ultimately his ascension into heaven. So they're talking about what is going to come. And whether that gives us a clue at all as to what Christ was actually praying about, we don't know. But it's curious that right then and there, there's Moses and Elijah showing up. You know? Was Christ having a prayer <clears throat> as he did in the garden? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. We don't know. If that was the prayer, wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be nice to think of God sending Moses and Elijah there to strengthen him, to assure him? The other thing that this points out, doesn't it, that this plan with Christ is not something that God was kind of making up as he goes along. You've got Moses and Elijah. Just think of how far back that goes. Again, that this one up there on the mountain, Christ, has been the one 
that God promised actually all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to send to crush the head of Satan. He is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is going to come, and through him all nations of the earth will be blessed. So this kind of points out that you've got Moses and Elijah up there, the continuity of God's plan of salvation all the way back throughout the Old Testament. Okay? So, they spoke about of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So again, makes no mistake about what they're talking about. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. We <laughs> gotta say, these guys come on. I mean they're they're in the Garden of Gethsemane on Monday, Thursday night. What are they doing? Sleeping. Christ goes off to pray some more, he comes back, they're sleeping again. And here they are on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're heavy with sleep again. You gotta wonder, you know, come on guys. And uh Anyway, Peter, James, and John are, remember, the first disciples that Jesus called. We, we looked several weeks ago at uh, Jesus coming, and remember the miraculous catch of fish that they had been uh, fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus says, uh, cast out, cast your nets. Lord, Peter says, Lord, we've been fishing all night, haven't caught a thing, but at your word we'll put down the nets. And remember, they, such a miraculous catch of fish that they had to call their other buddies over, James and John and the other partners, and both boats are almost sinking. And so uh, they were the first ones called, and Peter, James, and John seem to always be there when something big is happening. They were kind of the inner circle of the 12 disciples, okay? So, going back to this, uh, they with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became, notice here, fully awake, now, why is it important that Luke adds fully awake here, you think? Yeah, so that we know, the reader knows that they were, this wasn't some kind of, oh, I'm kind of groggy. Did we really see Moses and Elijah here? No, they're fully awake, okay? And they're going to be fully awake once they open their eyes and see what's in front of them. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So again, Luke makes it very clear. They were fully awake. They saw the two men who were standing there with him. Okay? And as the men, Elijah and Moses in this case, of course, were praying, or I'm sorry, were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Well, why do you think that Peter, that there was in the Old Testament, there was a festival of booze where um, it was an annual festival that they went through and they actually kind of pitched tents and lived out in the wilderness. It was a reminder of the time that they went through the wilderness and uh, they did that on an annual basis. But why do you think Peter would say, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I don't know what he thought Peter, where he was thinking about Peter, James, and John, what they were going to do. But anyway, we'll make three tents here for you guys. What do you think? Any idea? Well, the idea, I think, is this is incredible. Let's just stay up here, you know? And you be in this glory, and Moses and Elijah be here, 
And let's not think anymore about what you were saying eight days earlier about going to Jerusalem, being handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed. Let's, let's not worry about all that. Let's just stay here, right? And notice Luke says there he didn't even know what he, he was saying. You know, he, he was just the idea. And Peter, of course, uh, is known for kind of speaking before he thinks things through anyway. And this is one more example, okay? Then verse 34, And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, we think there's probably good reason that they were afraid. There's, first of all, just a physical reason, I guess. You're way up there on this mountain, and all of a sudden a cloud comes. And have you ever had that experience of being... Uh, we were in the northwest and went up on Mount Hood one time, which is uh, not far from Portland. And boy, you get up there, even this was in, I think it was in June, and there was still snow up there, and there was like a fog all around. You couldn't see very far out in front of you, so there's a physical reason they're afraid. But also, there's probably a spiritual reason. In the Old Testament, God, uh, can you think of another time on a mountain that God was there in the form of a cloud? Mount Sinai, right? He's up there, and it's not only a cloud, but there's thunder, and God is speaking to Moses up there. Uh, there's the time that the tabernacle is dedicated, and there's a cloud that comes in and fills the tabernacle. There's the time the temple is dedicated, and a cloud comes so that they couldn't even enter the temple. And this is how God, in many times in the Old Testament, demonstrates his presence. It's through the, the appearance of a cloud. And remember, he guided his people in the Old Testament through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they're, we think they're afraid, not only from the pure physical that you know, we can't see around us and it's dark and so on, but also, is, is God in this cloud? Because they've, they've known this has happened in the past, and sure enough, then at verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So sure enough, it's a manifestation of God, speaks from this cloud. And as I said earlier, at the baptism of Jesus, uh, the Father is speaking to the Son. You are my beloved Son, right, with whom I am well pleased. Here, notice, he's not speaking to the Son. He's speaking to Peter, James, and John, and all of us, saying, not you are, but this is my chosen, my son, my chosen one, okay? And that has echoes of Isaiah chapter 42, where uh, Isaiah predicts the, the suffering servant, the chosen one. And it echoes that. And also notice here, listen to him. In other words, including what he said eight days earlier. Listen to him, right? And that's going to be something that they are going to need to remember. And verse 35, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So you get the idea now that there's a transition that has been made. Moses and Elijah are gone, and there's just Christ there. Okay? The new covenant is upon them. 
No longer the old covenant, but the new covenant is here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Him alone. Moses and Elijah are out of the picture now. Just Jesus. Okay? And let's stop for a second and just ask uh, the question. Why do you think Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on that mountain? And why do you think God wants them to have that experience? Any ideas? Seeing Jesus glorified, hearing the voice of the Father, this is my son, my chosen one. Why would Peter, James, and John need to hear this and see this, perhaps, at this time? What do you think of it? Okay, they can pass it on to other people, and in fact, Peter does. I mean, he, he, it's, it's, again, we think this is strange. We all, when we read this, we think it's always strange that they told no one. But in 2 Peter, uh, let's see, it's 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Uh, Peter lets us know that, he says, we did not follow uh, fables and myths. We were eyewitnesses to his glory. Okay? But just think about what's coming now. What's ahead? In Luke 9, verse uh, 51, uh, Luke is going to tell us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That's just a few verses after this. And what's lying ahead now is going to be exactly what Jesus predicted. He is going to be handed over to men, be suffered, die, and rise again on the third day. They are going to have to endure this, Peter, James, and John, along with the other disciples. Peter, we know, doesn't do such a very good job of it, does he? Out there in the courtyard, three times. Denies him, using the strongest language, but then gets reinstated afterward. Uh, so, you know, these disciples, it's in a way, it's a, sort of a special thing, a special uh, encouragement, I guess you would say, and strengthening that they receive up on that mountain because not far in the future is going to be exactly what Jesus predicted. Think of our situation now. We are in the very end of Epiphany, and what's going to become March 3, next, next Sunday? What's March 6? Ash Wednesday, and we're going to make that same trek that those disciples are going to be making to the cross on Good Friday and ultimately then to the open tomb on Easter Sunday. We, too, in seeing this, and in hearing the Father's validation of this one as his chosen one is good for us to remember also. As we see Jesus being arrested, uh, treated shamefully, and hung ultimately on a cross for six hours. And so, you know, it is good for us. And uh, next Sunday will be the last time we will sing hallelujah until Easter Sunday. So it's good for us to be seeing this, and our, our uh, worship calendar, our liturgical calendar sets it up so that we have this, this glimpse of his glory, you might say, and this validation from the Father before we set, start down the dark road of, of Lent also. Okay? All right, so let me stop there. we got a few minutes. We'll get to the epistle lesson in just a minute here. Any comments or questions on this gospel lesson? Yes, Don? Yes. Right. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, the question is, and it's a great question, I thought about this myself too, and I don't have an answer for it, and that is, if Moses was buried, you know, there he is now. And Elijah, we know, was, was transported to heaven, did not see death, but as you recall, was taken up in the fiery chariot. So we can kind of understand how he's there, but what about the body of Moses being there? And I guess the only answer I have is that God can resurrect Moses at any time, just like he would resurrect any of us at any time for his purposes. But that is, a, that is always an interesting question. Um, and I, again, I don't have any other answer uh, than that. They couldn't see him? Well, yeah, but I mean, I think the question is, uh, if he was buried and in the ground, then how come he's got a body up there on the... Exactly, yeah, exactly. God can do what he wants, and yeah, yeah. In fact, you could say this is another example of the resurrection of the body, another another proof of that. Okay? Any other questions? That's a great question. I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> I don't. All right, let's go on to the epistle lesson. And this is from the book of Hebrews. And again, notice how uh, Festival Sunday, it ties in also. So, therefore, uh, we're, I'm sorry, we're at Hebrews 3, starting at verse 1 for our people at home. Therefore, holy brothers... And so they, we are brothers who are, and sisters, it's kind of the generic sense here. Uh, to be holy is to be set apart or, or set apart for God's use and made blameless. You who share in a heavenly calling. Notice how the author there emphasizes the calling that we have from above and to above. Consider Jesus. Now here's the only time in the scriptures that Jesus is ever called the apostle. The apostle and high priest of our confession. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't balk at this. Normally we think of the apostles as, right, the disciples, those who are sent out with authority. And Paul, of course, is an apostle as well. To be an apostle, had to see, have seen the risen Christ, right, and uh, been an eyewitness of these things. And an apostle is actually one who is sent out with authority. That's what the word means. In the Greek, it's apostello, to send out or send away with authority. Jesus sent the disciples out with authority and ultimately in the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. And Christ is an apostle in the sense that he is sent from whom? The Father. Yeah, he is sent from the Father to do not his own will, but the Father's will. So in that sense, we have Christ being the one who is sent from the Father to us with obviously a very specific mission in mind. And he also then is a high priest. How is Jesus a high priest? What do the high priests do, especially on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, went into the Holy of Holies in the temple or tabernacle and made, remember, the sacrifice and sprinkled the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And so made one time a year, made sacrifice for the sins of the people. How is Jesus then a high priest? What did he do? He is, yeah, he's actually kind of both, isn't he? He is the sacrifice himself, the perfect once and for all sacrifice, 
And he's also the one offering the sacrifice, isn't he? So he's kind of both in, both in one. He's the, the one offering it, and he is the sacrifice. So he is the high priest of our confession, or what we believe. Okay? Verse 2, who was faithful to him who anointed him. So he, Christ was faithful. Now, who anointed Christ again? The Father, right? The Father anointed Christ. Now, notice here comes the tie. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. God's house here, we would think, uh, refers to his people, okay, the nation at that time. So here comes the tie to Moses. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And you know, when Hebrew readers, this is an epistle to the Hebrews, these are, again, Jewish Christians, when they would read this, they would sit up and take notice here, that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, remember what we read back in the Old Testament lesson, that not since then has one arisen that's equal to Moses. Well, writer of the Hebrews says, oh yes, in fact, now he's given more glory than Moses, okay? Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped the portion here. I'm sorry. Uh, right after the more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. And so there's a sort of an analogy or a comparison going here. The builder of the house is worth more... Is deserves more glory than the actual structure itself that is built. So if the structure is the church, the builder of the church deserves more glory than the church itself. Now verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Here comes a comparison. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, a willing servant here, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, concerning Christ, concerning the things that were going to come later, Moses spoke about these things. But here's the comparison, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Notice he's not just a servant, he's a son. Okay? And much higher standing. And we, today, are his house. In other words, the church. We are his, Christ's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting, I, we want to make sure we put the right spin on that, taking pride in, in our hope. And the hope that we have, of course, is centered in Jesus Christ himself. Okay? All right. So that's, that's a tie. You see, you get Moses, and spe uh, speaking of him as being so faithful in the Old Testament, Faithful to God's house or to the church at that time, God's people. But now Christ is faithful over God's house, the church, and is faithful in all things. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Any comments or questions about the epistle lesson for next week? All right. So next week again, we will be here talking about... Uh, transfiguration and that will be our main theme for that day and we will sing hallelujah uh, for the last time uh, for at least for 40 days uh, not including Sundays 
uh, until Easter Sunday. All right, let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.